Hello and welcome to the podcast for the September 2011 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. I'm Richard Lane and I'm joined by TLID's editor John McConnell just to run through some of the issue highlights. John, let's start with something important but it feels quite old news because we published the study on June the 23rd online. Obviously it's a very serious issue and that is the E. coli outbreak in Germany. There's been huge press coverage about this at the time, John. What's the main message from here? What have we learnt about this genetic variant? And, and what are the implications from E. coli about, about how other variants could occur in, in other pathogens? Yes, well, this is a very unusual strain of E. coli that's causing hemolytic uremic syndrome in, uh, in Germany. And subsequent publication of this paper online in June, then there was a, a, an outbreak in, uh, in France as well. So, and what makes this particular strain uh, unusual is that it's, it blends the characteristics of, of other virulent strains of E. coli. So it's managed to blend characteristics which are known as um, sugar toxin-producing and enteroaggregative, which means that it's more likely to, uh, to bind to the intestinal wall and then produce its, um, its toxin, the sugar toxin. And it's sugar toxin, which can lead to hemolytic uremic syndrome. So the speculation here is, is these two factors together, which have made this a particular virulent strain of E. coli. Now, it's not the first time that this particular strain has been isolated. It was first isolated as far back as, uh, as 2001. And then the strain is called HUSEC-041. So it has been known of, but it's been very rare. And But what the, the strain has acquired since it was first isolated more than 10 years ago a resistance to a spectrum, a fairly broad spectrum of antibiotics. So it's acquired what's known as a extended spectrum beta-lactamase uh, phenotype uh, antibiotic resistance and resistance to one or two other uh, antibiotics as well. So this makes it potentially um, a very dangerous strain, a, a strain that which, which can cause severe illness and which can be um, um, difficult to treat. And of course, we don't know whether it's going to where it's going to pop up next. Uh, I think what's the interesting development in this story since we originally published the paper online is the food source for this E. coli has been put down to fenugreek seeds. So it's the the sprouting of the fenugreek seeds which cause the which produce the so-called bean sprouts. And uh, these fenugreek seeds are um, supposedly that their original source for them was in uh, Egypt. Now whether they've been contaminated since they came to Egypt or whether they uh, somehow became contaminated with the E. coli uh, once they got to Europe and um, were actually in nurseries and being sprouted, then we just don't know. Presumably, John, the bigger point about having a detailed understanding of the genetic behaviour of the strain is that obviously this could apply and has applied, think of influenza, for example, uh, in other pathogens that cause other infectious diseases. So it's important to try and understand the genetic characteristics of what's going on. Absolutely right. You know, you, you need to know, um, if you can find out, you need to know the, uh, the mechanism and then you can uh, tailor your, um, hopefully, to be able to sort of tailor your management. Excellent. Next, John, let's talk. There's a systematic review and uh, meta-analysis, and this is looking at syphilis in relation to pregnancy. Now, this is a bit of a new one on me. What's the clinical issue here? What's the concern? Well, syphilis is a well-known cause of perinatal deaths, so um, deaths in babies around the time of birth a subject particularly highlighted in the stillbirth series, which the uh, the Lancet did only a, a few months ago. So it's estimated that syphilis is responsible for something like half a million perinatal deaths per year in uh, sub-Saharan Africa alone. However, you can... Um, screen for syphilis in pregnancy and it happens routinely in many countries it happens uh, of course it happens routinely in um, in uh, the united kingdom western europe and the united states 
doesn't happen nearly so much in sub-Saharan Africa, in the poorer countries of the world. So what these authors are looking at is, is just if they can bring together the data and measure the effectiveness of um, screening, screening mothers for syphilis. And, of course, it is a uh, it appears to be a, a very cost-effective cost in intervention. So they say, bringing together all the data, the screening for antenatal syphilis could reduce the syphilis-attributable incidence of stillbirths and perinatal deaths by about 50%. And they say that the, the cost per woman screened in Tanzania, for example, uh, would only be about $1.44. So the main message then is it's doable, but actually it's the cost-effectiveness. It's justifiable even in low-income settings. It's cheap, it's effective. You've just got to weigh, find ways of implementing and sustaining programmes. And John, tell us briefly, there's an interesting news item by Kelly Morris about polio. And polio eradication, that concept has been hanging around for a while, but we're still not there, are we? We're not. There's been a polio eradication initiative since, oh, I can't quite remember, about 1980, something like that. And the number of cases worldwide has come down. It's about a hundredth of what it used to be. I mean, we used to have literally hundreds of thousands of cases a year worldwide. I think last year we were down to the to something under 2,000 cases worldwide of polio. But there are some countries where it hangs around tenaciously. And those countries particularly are India, Afghanistan, Nigeria and Pakistan. And so polio eradication is kind of tantalisingly out of reach. There are still these relatively small number of cases which can continue to, uh, to grumble on. And so this News Desk article by, uh, by Kelly Morris kind of looks at some of the, the barriers to, um, to polio eradication, pointing out that India potentially potentially could be free of any polio cases this year. But we'd still have uh, the problem countries still remain Pakistan and, and Nigeria, where it's difficult to get the, uh, the programs out into the countryside and get the, uh, the vaccine, get the vaccine to everybody who needs it and also get them to take the vaccine. Thanks, John. And finally, there's a very interesting personal view, which I found surprising when I read it. And this concerns activism and Lyme disease. Basically, there's a line in, in the paper which is saying, John, that Lyme disease activists or advocacy uh, could be harming public health. Tell us more. Well, Lyme disease. So it's a um, it's a tick transmitted bacterial infection causes a, an acute illness, which can be fairly serious, is usually treatable by uh, antibiotics and is very seldom fatal. However, for, for some reason, reasons which are hard to put a finger on, there is a perception in certain quarters that Lyme is also the cause of uh, a much more chronic disease. And so what's happened is that uh, some people with non-specific long-term symptoms have been persuaded that they are suffering from a chronic form of uh, Lyme disease and that interventions such as uh, long-term antibiotic treatment will benefit them. Now, unfortunately, uh, there is no evidence, there is no good solid scientific evidence for a chronic form of Lyme disease. However, there are groups of advocates in the United States and uh, uh, some in Europe now who believe that this does exist. They offer treatment, they offer unverified, unlicensed treatment, they offer unverified, unlicensed tests for this so-called 